From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. It's politics that stirred everything up. Political rhetoric inflamed the shooters so much that they killed people who lived in their own community. It was neighbor-killing neighbor. That's how North Carolina research historian Leray Umfleet describes a key realization about Wilmington, North Carolina's coup d'etat. The moment was both revelatory and shocking for Umfleet. The idea that a political movement could engender so much fear, hatred, and anger that it could drive people to murder their own neighbors. About 125 years ago, on November 10, 1898, a mob of white men set the daily record on fire. At the time, it was the only African-American daily newspaper in the South and possibly the only one in the nation. After destroying the newspaper, mob violence continued in the streets of Wilmington, where white men attacked and killed between 40 and 60 people, most of them African-American. Many more, both white and black, who did not support the white supremacist movement, were banished from the city. Also that day, the mob forced local duly elected city officials to resign at gunpoint. White supremacist leaders took their seats. The carefully planned violence by a white supremacist cabal had one goal, to recapture political power. Historian Leray Umfleet of North Carolina's Department of Natural and Cultural Resources is the primary researcher and author of the state's official Wilmington Race Riot Report, commissioned in 2003 and accepted into the historical record by state statute in 2006. That work led to her book, A Day of Blood, the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot, published in 2009. She joins me now. Lorraine Umfleet, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. It's really good to have you with us. Great to be here. The new Hanover County Public Library is sponsoring a talk with Lorraine Umfleet, followed by a Q&A with the audience. The event is November 11th, 2023 at 2 p.m. in City Council Chambers at Thalian Hall. Now, of course, we're going to get into the basics about what happened on November 10th, 1898. But this historical record that you essentially created was accepted by the state as the official report, what happened. And that was almost 20 years ago. You keep telling the story. Why do you keep telling the story? Why does this story live for you? It's a compelling story. It's a tragic piece of our state's history that is, even though we keep telling it, it's still relatively unknown, even in the city of Wilmington, and that politics can motivate people in 1898 to kill people and their neighbors in the streets just because of propaganda is something that scares me. It scared me 20 years ago. It... um, as a mom, I, I'm afraid when I read some of the things that happened and that those children witnessed. And it's just something that it stays with you and you can't let it go. And um, 
I wasn't a conspiracy theorist before I started this work, but I certainly became one learning how the coup and, and all the activity around it came together as a planned activity. Um, so it's just a part of me now. Yeah. And when we first spoke, you you said that you're finding at your talks there are more people who are knowledgeable about the coup. And so the kinds of questions are different. You're not always needing to to talk about just the kind of the bare bones facts of what happened. But you also acknowledge there are lots of new people coming into this region. And it's not really a part of the American historical curriculum yet. Maybe mm. one day it will be. So can you give us kind of the short version of what this was and how, I mean, such an important component of the story is the fact that what happened on November 10th, 1898, was just the culmination of lots of political maneuvering before. So how, how would you explain what happened? So the short story is difficult to put together without, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's many facets to this story, but in a nutshell, um, Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina at the time, and it had an African-American slight majority population, and it was an example of how whites and blacks could live together in a prosperous city with everyone succeeding because statistically people in Wilmington, regardless of race, regardless of free or enslaved status before the Civil War, Everyone was making more money in Wilmington than anywhere else in North Carolina, uh, even day laborers. Also, um, African-Americans owned more homes in Wilmington than other places on average. Education was better for everyone. And so Wilmington was just this bustling, growing place inside North Carolina that was an example of people working and living and cooperating together. It wasn't a perfect Thing in any way, shape, or form. There was still discrimination. There were still tensions. But Wilmington was doing it a little bit better than anybody else in North Carolina. And um, the upper-class white leadership and the white supremacy campaign comes together in 1898 for the first time in a successful way to um, lobby white men to vote for the Democratic Party, which is the party of white supremacy. Now, when we say Democrat and Republican of 1898, we are not talking about Democrat and Republican of 2023. Those uh, platforms and tenets are completely different. Democrats of 1898 are the party of white supremacy. They're conservative. And um, the Republican Party of this time period is the party of progressives, of African-American voters, and uh, voters who came to North Carolina after the Civil War. So don't confuse those two terms, please. Really important um, point. Yeah. Right, right. But um, the Democratic Party in 1898 used the white supremacy platform for the first time as a successful tool to bring people to the polls to get white men to vote. And they used a bevy of tools in their toolkit, including intimidation with the red shirts, uh, violence with the red shirts. Um, now, who were the red shirts? So the red shirts were... Uh, paramilitary terror organization organized by the Democratic Party. And they wore bright red shirts. And um, then they also, the Democratic Party used newspapers to put out propaganda 
And finally, they used speechmakers, like Wilmington's own Alfred Moore Waddell was a very good speechmaker. And Josephus Daniels in Raleigh said that because of the speeches given by Waddell, the cause of Wilmington, meaning retaking control of Wilmington by white supremacy, it became the cause of the entire state. So Wilmington became a focal point in the 1898 election. And the 1898 election was one that was built to uh, seat representatives in Washington, D.C., but also in the House and Senate in Raleigh, the state legislature, not for the governor's office, not for control of the city with the mayor and the board of aldermen. This was purely for representation in Raleigh and in D.C. And the campaign was super successful in stirring up propaganda and engendering hatred by white men against black men. And in Wilmington, the election ran the direction that the Democratic Party wanted on November 8th, which was election day. November 9th, we see the white men of Wilmington come together and pass what we call the White Declaration of Independence. And I'm sure we'll talk about that some more. But essentially, they wanted to fire blacks, hire whites. Alex Manley, the printer of the newspaper, needed to leave the city, things like that. And then... To save his own life. Right. Like when the people were banished, they were. it was basically, if you stay, you'll, you'll die. You'll die. Yeah. And um, then um, on the day of the 10th, violence unfolded, beginning with the burning of the newspaper building on... 7th Street, and then it took off from there into the north side of the city with untold numbers of men being shot, between 40 and 60 men dying. And um, then in the afternoon of that day, we have the overthrow of the city's government in a coup d'etat, which was a legally elected government being overthrown by an armed group of men at the Alien Hall. Now, one of the things that... Um you have said to me that we uh, we hear from the mothership NPR all the time is be very careful when you say first, only, best, last, superlatives, uh, because you're always going to find something that was firster or last or it's you're always going to find out it wasn't the only one. For so long, when we have talked about the coup d'etat on the air, we've said the only successful coup d'etat in American history. Is that true? As far as I can tell, it is. There are, was it a model for potentially others Mm -hmm. around the country? You know, we've heard horrific stories. Tulsa, Oklahoma, for instance, which was several decades later. Mm -hmm. I think that was 1931 when a white mob also murdered black citizens and burned down Black Wall Street and the black business district, but that wasn't a coup. Right. It was um, murder. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I'm laughing, but it's a tragic thing. But But this is the only one we know of where they actually took over the government. When we released the report, our PR department wanted to put that in the newspaper articles that they were sending out, and I was a little hesitant, but they ran with it. And I had to wait to see the rebuttals. <laughs> You're listening to Coastline, North Carolina state historian and author of A Day of Blood. Lorraine Umfleet is my guest today. After this short break, we'll talk more about the coup 
the political propaganda, and what we're learning about the lasting impact of Wilmington's coup d'etat. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. It was 2003 that Lorraine Umfleet, an historical researcher, found herself assigned the task of creating an official North Carolina state report about what is arguably the city of Wilmington's darkest day. November 10, 1898, the day of a bloody massacre and coup d'etat perpetrated by a white power structure afraid of the growing independence, prosperity, and actualization of the city's black community. After delivering the report in 2006, Lorray Umfleet went on to publish a book with her findings, A Day of Blood, the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot. That book came out in 2009. In 2020, the North Carolina Office of Archives and History published a revised edition. For the 125th anniversary of the coup, on November 11, 2023, New Hanover County Public Library will offer a talk with LeRae Umfleet, followed by a Q&A with the audience. The event is at 2 p.m. in City Council Chambers at Thalian Hall. Now, LeRae Umfleet, just before we went to break, I had asked you, if you were sure, <laughs> this was the only successful coup d'etat in American history. And apparently, you've gotten this question before. <laughs> yes. So when we released the report, we were expecting feedback from scholars and individuals all over the country. Well, it ended up that I got feedback from all over the world, from people who had been studying United States history. And there were several examples that were sent to me of um, coup-like activity where local citizens were unhappy with government and they took over the county courthouse or something like that. But in every instance that was sent to me, I'd do some research and I'd follow it up and they weren't successful in that they did not remain in power over whatever town or county they had their uprising in because in any instance, those folks were only able to maintain power for days, not even really weeks or months. But here in Wilmington, when Alfred Moore Waddell and the white men of Wilmington took over control of the city government on November 10th, they maintained that control and it was reaffirmed at the next election for the mayor and board of aldermen. So it was a successful coup where everyone else in any of the other instances didn't maintain that control and regain control permanently. So until someone comes up with an example, which there's always new research being done, for now, it is the only successful coup d'etat in United States history. Now, in 2003, the conversation about this event was 
beginning to open up a little bit. There was the Centennial Acknowledgement in 1998, which opened up the conversation some. There was uh, State Senator Luther... Go ahead and say it. Luther Hodges. Luther Hodges. There was also uh, State Representative Thomas Wright. Correct. And those two people were invested in making this part, digging into it, making it part of the state record. But there was a lot of resistance to telling this story. And I'm curious, we've talked on this program with Philip Gerard, the late Philip Gerard, about his uh, researching and writing Cape Fear Rising, which is a fictionalized version of mm-hmm. the coup d'etat. And he, we all know now, had his tenure threatened. Uh, he had his life threatened. It was it was a tough time. And that was before 2003, before you would have been working on this story. How did you interact with the public on this story? And what was that like for you? I was a fresh-faced researcher thinking, you know, I'm going to you know, uncover and, and share. And my history as a historian has always been bringing to light those undertold or untold or hidden stories. So I was, you know, eager to do the research, talk to the um, descendants, find the answers that we could put together the African-American experience of 1898. We sort of really understood what the white folks had done, but we really didn't understand the impact and the suffering and the the negative things that were experienced by the black community. And that was my goal, to try to uncover that story. And as I was doing my work, I would do talks around Wilmington. And um, there grew a cohort of folks who would come to the meetings that I would give talks at and heckle me and heckle you how oh that's not right or she's you know a revisionist historian with a reparations slant and she that's not right that's not how it happened he didn't say that you know all so kinds this would be while you were talking people in the was, audience would be shouting mm-hmm, while I was talking and I began to know who they were and I would just you know Ignore them <laughs> because, you know, this, this is the truth, the history, the, the reality of what happened. And to, to cover it up and hide it and deny it isn't going to help anyone. And we have to know our true history. And so I just learned to get a thick skin and move on through it. And there were other people on the other end of the spectrum. You know, you're white. You can't tell my story. And I... You know, I was like, well, I can't change that, but I do want to write this history and I do want to give voice to these people whose story hasn't been told and help me and add to it. That's what I want to, you know, I was asking people around the city and the county to do. And others, you know, I learned who and what to talk to and how to, you know, find out who knows the information. Miss Bertha Todd's wonderful. And um, we, I had commissioners that would help me go open doors and meet with people. And some people were very hesitant to talk and share their stories because they had been uh, sort of taught by their elders to keep quiet. Know amongst yourselves what happened 
to us in 1898, but don't talk about it with others. So I understood that perspective, too. And Which is what Bertha Todd describes as the 1898 mentality, I think. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and what was that about? I mean, that was self-preservation in some form. Right. Right. And um, it, it was just a learned behavior by the black community in Wilmington for the most part. And but, you know, I have since learned that many of the white community whose ancestors were heavily involved in the planning and execution of this project of overthrowing the city and and killing people in the streets didn't know that their ancestors were very involved in what they were doing because their ancestors didn't pass it down either. So there were, when the centennial happened and even while I was doing my research, long-time descendants of Wilmington who didn't understand what had happened in their city because the narrative had gotten buried within the hearts and minds of that generation that experienced it. And it didn't carry through to those second and third generations for whatever reason, whether it was fear or shame or I don't know what else you could have, but they just didn't talk about it. And so it didn't come through. And so not only have I seen myself having to educate new residents of Wilmington and new generations of Wilmingtonians, I have also educated the elder generations whose parents and grandparents were involved. So who were the hecklers? I mean, the people that were trying to shout you down and calling you, and we're going to talk about um, your um, embracing of the term revisionist historian and what that actually means. But uh, why did people want to keep this quiet in 2003? I don't, I don't, I never really got to know those men. It was all older men for the most part. And I never really got to know them. I just knew them on site. And I have a feeling that they had a very conservative, small frame world that they looked through a lens at history with. And white men were the leaders and should be the leaders and aren't necessarily the leaders now and they need to be the leaders now. And so I think it was a continuation of the narrative that men like Alfred Moore Waddell created to justify what they did in 1898, continuing into 2020-whatever, 2005-2006. And so when people would call you a revisionist historian— you would say something along the lines of, yes, that's exactly what I am. What, what do you mean by that? For me, it's not revising history. It's making history complete. It's making the story more full because the uncomfortable bits of history are, they are what they are. And we need to know them. We need to understand them. And we need to not let those kinds of things happen again. And that's my personal approach to this story of history is, is, you know, we need to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that we're messy humans, and we do things where someone might actually be a good person, but they do horrible things. Does that mean they're really a good person? I'm not a psychologist. I'm a historian. But we've got to tell the whole of history and not hide it all. So if that makes me a revisionist, then I'm a revisionist. But I want the truth 
of history to be out there, the facts, the and making it personal with the names, who was murdered, who shot a gun, who profited and benefited from supporting this coup. Those things, when we take history and make it more personal and real, that helps everyone understand it a little bit more, too. In your book, A Day of Blood, you begin one of your chapters with a quotation by H.L. Mencken from In Defense of Women from 1918. And the quotation reads, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Mm -hmm. That's a great quote. Yeah. And Practical Politics, the title of that chapter. So what were the hobgoblins then that uh, the white supremacist power structure was trying to sell to a majority black city? Because that's the other piece of this. How were they able to sell that idea when this was such a progressive place and had uh, such a thriving black community at the time? Well, the nature of politics in North Carolina, not only did we have the two leading parties, we had a middle-of-the-road third party, the Populist Party. And the Populist Party was mainly consisting at that time of disaffected Democrats. And the Democratic Party needed those voters to come back to the Democratic Party fault, to vote for the Democrats and not side with the Republicans or vote for Republican candidates. They were sort of like an independent. They voted for the candidate, not the platform and sort of things like that. And um, the work of the Democratic Party to convince white men that black brutes out there in the city were hoping to molest white women at every opportunity, and the city was... um, in the throes of a crime spree and that it was black men who were leading the crime spree. Um, Was the city in the throes of a crime spree? No. Okay. So even that was, uh, that was one of the imaginary hobgoblins. It was that, you know, black men are out there and the city government is corrupt because we had African-Americans on the city board of aldermen. And that means that those corrupt men on the city board of aldermen who hire the policemen who run the city who are also black men are allowing this crime to happen and the crime is being created by black men. Well, we studied the crime record and the rates of uh, arrests and incarcerations and there was no uh, spike in any sort of crime activity. It was pretty standard year for what was going on in the city compared to other years. So that was just that hobgoblin and fear of the black man taking control away from white men was the root of all of these hobgoblins, whether it be economic or political or social. The black man is something that we need to create a fear of, um, even in the working class men who would eventually feel that they were underpaid compared to black men. And they weren't. They were being paid on a similar scale. But they 
you know, any sort of opportunity to create a discord between the white and black races would mean that those populist voters would continuously move from the populist party over to the Democratic Party. Now, how did they sell this idea? I think you mentioned earlier, Luray Umfleet, that political cartoons were an important part of this. The right. newspapers around the state were used to push these ideas. And you include in your book, A Day of Blood, examples of some of the images of these political cartoons. And I have to be honest, some of them reminded me of um, Nazi propaganda, mm -hmm. just in terms of the way things were drawn and how, I mean, it was, it was very similar. Right. That's not your role as a historian, I realized, to compare one, uh, one generation to another, but I, I couldn't help but notice the striking similarity. Right. Well, describe some of these cartoons. Um, there, any number of them, they show a black man in, you know, one has him as a bat swooping down onto white woman, women and children and, and grabbing them. And um, Negro domination is on his wings. Uh, another one is um, harassing a white woman. And, you know, there's, there's any number of roles that these black brutes could fit into in these cartoons. And we have to remember that people in 1898 weren't necessarily as literate as we are today. And anyone could pick up the News and Observer, which is where these newspaper cartoons mainly ran, uh, with Josephus Daniels of Raleigh. And um, look at that cartoon, and you may not be able to read the article next to it, but you understand what that cartoon is implying, and therefore you understand what the newspaper is about. Now, for those who could read, Rebecca Felton was a player in all of this. Tell us who Rebecca Felton was and, and what her role happened to be. She was a woman from Georgia, and she was very much of the white supremacy cloth that people here in North Carolina were. And in 1897, the year before, she gave a speech in Georgia where she pointed out that white men need to do everything possible to protect the sanctity of white womanhood. And if that meant lynching a black man a day, then she was all for that. Um, and that grew and grew in Georgia. And then it was picked up here in Wilmington in 1898 and run in one of the newspapers here in town. One of the white newspapers? Correct. One of the pro-democratic party white newspapers. And Alex Manley saw it and he couldn't let it go. Editor, publisher of the Daily Record, the African-American newspaper. And he wrote an editorial in his newspaper that um, rebutted most of the things that um, Rebecca Felton was putting in her um, speech. And um, including saying maybe some white women have chosen black men. Maybe they fell in love with them. Right. It's, I mean, suggesting that perhaps there is equality right. among humans. Right. And that, you know, pointing out that um, black men may not all be those black burly brutes, that they could be sufficiently handsome for white women to fall in love with. And conversely, white men have been taking advantage of black women for generations. And um, Manley himself was an example of that. He was a light-skinned black man who could pass as white, and which he did after the uh, violence in, uh, when he relocated to Pennsylvania. But um, Manley couldn't let that ride. So he, he went out and wrote his editorial and uh, 
pointed out all these things about how black men could be with white women by choice. And I want to add, there's been some controversy about what role his editorial played in the explosion of everything, but we'll get that on the other side of this break. You're listening to Coastline. North Carolina historian Lorraine Umfleet is my guest today. She's the author of A Day of Blood about Wilmington's 1898 coup d'etat. After this short break, we'll also find out why she worries about preservation and why a particularly important site in Wilmington could see the marks of history erased. We'll have more with Ray Umfleet. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Larray Umfleet is an historical researcher in North Carolina's Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. She wrote the definitive historical account of Wilmington's 1898 coup d'etat after the state legislature commissioned an official report in 2003. The research into the impacts of the massacre perpetrated by white supremacists pushing a repressive and discriminatory political agenda continues by a number of organizations to this day. For the 125th anniversary of the coup, on November 11, 2023, New Hanover County Public Library will offer a talk with Luray Umfleet, followed by a Q&A with the audience. The event is at 2 p.m. in City Council Chambers at Thalian Hall. Now, Lorraine, just before we went to break, you were explaining what Alex Manley, publisher of the Daily Record, the only African-American newspaper, daily newspaper at the time, had said in his editorial rebutting Rebecca Felton's um, racist rants. A lot of people say it was his editorial that was sort of uh, this the spark in the tinderbox. What do you? What role do you think his editorial played in the violent events of November tenth, eighteen ninety eight? I think he gave them a great tool because after his editorial ran, people like Furtifold Simmons out of Raleigh and uh, the folks here in Wilmington all saw the value in taking snippets of that article out of context and running it later in the election campaign season and swaying other voters to the Democratic Party fold because it fit right into their narrative of of the burly black man who wants to take advantage of white women. And that's exactly what they did. And Manley was part of the equation. He became the face of these black burly brutes, although he was not a black burly brute. He passed for white in escaping the city. And I show his photo to school groups, and the girls say they don't care if he's black or white because he's cute. Right. (laughs) He was a nice-looking man. (laughs) Um, So they, um, they made Alex Manley a scapegoat and used him as part of the example of a problem. Was the coup going to happen with or without his editorial? I believe so, yes. 
And I also believe that the morning of the violence on November 10th, that the white leadership felt that they had lost control of the mobs in the city and that they needed some sort of break, some sort of catalyst thing to happen to return the city back to whatever normal was at that time. And destruction of the printing press building was what they hoped would be the thing that would break the tension in the city and um, the banishment of Alex Manley because they were working towards that anyway. They needed to do away with that black newspaper voice to communicate across the city. And um, I think that things got out of hand on the day of the 10th, not to absolve anyone of anything that they said or did leading up to it, but I don't believe they thought that the threat of violence would turn into actual violence, but it did because we're all messy humans, as I said earlier, and human psyche doesn't allow us to sometimes just put something aside and be done with it like the leadership thought that they could. Yeah. Now, I'm, I want to talk about the language in the title of your book, but before we get to that, I said in the introduction that there were between 40 and 60 people who died on November 10th, 1898. When I first learned about the coup years ago, I would say between 13 and 30 people. Then later I heard possibly hundreds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why is this so hard to pin down and why are we now at 40 to 60? I'm at 40 to 60 because of the research I did. Um, I looked at newspapers, personal accounts, uh, letters, uh, diaries, journals, people's letters, conversations back and forth between themselves and their family that lived elsewhere. And every time I saw a reference to a death, a dead body, a death, I'd make a note and in the old-fashioned way with note cards. And I then laid all the note cards out and I started looking at them and seeing where there were multiple references to the same person who had been murdered. And so I put them together because there were multiple references so that one definitely happened. And I put it together in that sort of way. And um, there's no real strong records to tell us who died. The um, death certificates that we have now weren't required at that time, so we don't have death certificates. We had a coroner's inquest, but it was only on a fraction of the people who were murdered. And um, some people were um, buried in secret with unmarked graves. Why was that? Um, the family may not have been able to afford a headstone or a formal burial, um, or the family fled and someone else buried them just to get the body out of the streets and, and any number of things. There were some men that were shot at the intersection of 4th and Harnett. One of them climbed underneath the house to get away, and he died underneath that house, and they didn't find him but for a couple of days. So there's all kinds of different stories on how people died, where they died. Um, most everyone was shot, which is the one common element in all of this. We don't have any references of anyone being hung. It's all shooting. And um, it's just really difficult to put the the records together. So I'm at 40 to 60 based on my research. But, you know, I see how it could go in the hundreds, but I don't have that record. Now, your book title, A Day of Blood, 
1898 Wilmington race riot. Mm -hmm. I also have heard people take issue with the phrase race riot because it implies that there were two sides involved. Mm -hmm. And I always heard it was a massacre. It was perpetrated by white people on the black population. And then the coup d'etat, which was the governmental takeover. Why did you go with race riot? And why is that still on the cover of the book? Well, it's not there because I want it there. It's there because the Library of Congress put it there. (laughs) Well, beginning with the... 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission. That was the official name of the commission created by the legislature. And we, as a government agency, were tasked with assisting the commission in its work. So the report needed to reflect the name of the commission. So it was the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Report. And as we were working towards building the book out, we added, against my wishes, I think, the name 1898 Wilmington Race Riot as a subtitle. Uh, when we did the reprint, I tried to get that changed with the Library of Congress, and I couldn't. They have since made it so that you can change that. But So when we get to our third reprint, I'm going to change it. Um, what but, will it be? Um, a Day of Blood, 1898 Wilmington or something like that. Very similar. The, the headline, A Day of Blood, that's the headline at the top of the fold for the News and Observer for the day after the violence, a day of blood in Wilmington. So um, it's a historic phrase. Um, But race riot is technically a correct term because historically at this time, a race riot was white invasion of a black neighborhood and white destruction of black property. So race riot is appropriate for that time period. However, our modern brains don't see it that way. We think of other things when we think of race riot. And I understand that because 1898 is more than just a race riot. It is a coup. It is a massacre. It's a tragedy. It's horrible murders. And it's it's a stain on the city of Wilmington in so many different ways. So I don't use the phrase race riot anymore. It's on my cover, but I don't use it. Yeah. Um, so it's the day of violence in Wilmington, the uh, massacre, the coup, whatever phrase I'm using to apply. Because the coup is the political part, the massacre is the humanity part. That makes sense. Now, when you were given this assignment by the state, Luray Umfleet, in 2003, part of the your charge was to figure out what the economic impacts had been on the black community. So how do you describe the impacts? And, of course, what impacts do we see today? What, what makes this uh, dark day in Wilmington's history alive for us today? Well, it's historically, we, we studied the economic situation of African Americans in Wilmington before the violence, and then we compared post-violence. And we only looked at about a 10-year period on either side, um, simply because of the amount of data we had to crunch. And I was working with economists from UNC Chapel Hill who think all those numbers, and I'm not a numbers person. That's why I'm a history person. (laughs) And um, they looked at job categories and what that implies with wealth and and sustainability and, and looking at Uh, entrepreneurs and what it means to own your own business and things like that. And there was a distinct 
change between 1898 and 1899. Not only do we have large populations of Wilmingtonians fleeing the city and taking their work and their knowledge and their skill sets away from the city, we also have... So it was a huge brain drain and talent drain. Exactly. And the banishment campaign was selecting the leadership of the African-American community, whether they were church leaders, business leaders, um, entrepreneurs, or Republican Party leadership. They were banished from the city and told, don't come back or we're going to kill you. And they meant it. So that brain trust left, too. And um, the people who were left here were forced into second-class status. The, in fact, there was a mandate to fire blacks and hire whites in every opportunity, particularly, especially within city and county government. So those good-paying jobs for the city and county left the black community and went into the white community. Um, one exception was Alexander Sprunt. He lost a lot of his employees who fled, but he worked to get them back and assured their safety should they come back because they were such a skilled set of employees at the Cotton Cob Press. But, yes, we had a a huge loss of income and status before and after, particularly after. There is a generation today, great-great-grandchildren of Alexander Manley, who are seeking reparations, and there are other people now who are looking into that question. Do you think there's a case to be made? Is there, in terms of, I guess... There are a whole bunch of prongs to that idea. But let's just talk about property loss and wealth loss, like tangible things. Well, yes, Manley was forced to leave the city. His printing press that he had invested in, which was not a small investment, was completely destroyed and dismantled. I've seen people have pieces of the printing press as souvenirs that were picked up by their ancestors and they're still in their households. So um, that investment in his equipment is gone. So he lost a huge chunk of his ability to make money. When he was forced to leave the city, he had to start afresh, and he traveled around a little bit. He went to Washington, D.C. and New Jersey, and he ended up in Pennsylvania, and he became his long-term job was an elevator operator. And he was very, very well-educated and a smart man and very talented. But, yeah, he's pushing buttons on an elevator. So is he living up to his wealth potential? No, he's not. So, yes, Alex Manley is a perfect example of someone who was forced to leave the city and financially suffered because of that. And that does – that generational change does filter down. There's no doubt about it. T.C. Miller is another good example. He was a – a property owner. He was a pawnbroker for, you know, a lack of a better term. He was a real estate agent, loan officer for his own purposes, but, and he had a thriving business, but he was forced to leave the city. And there's some letters in the archives that talk about how he, from a distance, is trying to manage his affairs. And he's not doing a very good job of it because he's not there to be in court to represent himself. Now, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, This is so frustrating. (laughs) Manhattan Park is at 6th and Bladen on the north side of Wilmington. 
There are images of this park on the day of the violence. Um, you're adding this into your talk now. You're concerned about losing the history of that, that spot. Why? What's, what do we know about what's happening there? Well, at the corner of 6th and Bladen, we have reference in the historical record to the machine gun squadron being there. And in their records, as many as 25 people died in that intersection. We know Josh Halsey died nearby. He lived nearby. He was uh, tagged as a person who was probably shooting at the white patrols. They had no proof of that, but somebody probably in the crowd had a a grudge against him and it pointed to him and it, he was the guy, he's the guy. So he pretty much was told to run the gauntlet and he didn't survive. He was murdered in the street along with as many as 25 other people with that machine gun. Manhattan Park was on the corner of 6th and Bladen and it was a community center for that part of town. And they claimed that somebody in Manhattan Park was doing the shooting. And that meant that the machine gun squadron then opened up on that building and there was a fence around it. And the photo that you see of Manhattan Park, the fence is on the ground. It had been shot into pieces and the building is full of bullet holes and it's soon torn down and it became an empty lot. It's always been an empty lot since then. And we need to save that, not develop it. And that's this edition of Coastline. Leray Umfleet, thank you so much for joining us You're today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks also to New Hanover County Public Library. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find this episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.